everyone. My name is Kat Savage and I'm a professional artist, clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working with those in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. So let's keep talking, have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show, we speak to contemporary potter and Zen practitioner John Pollex. John was a natural creative from the start when he used to work on film sets in London. But after meeting a friend who introduced him to the world of ceramic art, John went on to study at Sir John Cass before becoming a technician at the prestigious Harrow School. With a deep interest in philosophy and Zen Buddhism, John travelled to Japan to learn about Japanese pottery techniques and also to study under the tuition of Buddhist monks before taking his precepts and returning to the UK, where he went on to become one of the top potters in the southwest of England. It is with great pleasure that I get to introduce you to this incredible craftsman, John Pollex. John Pollux, professional potter. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm good, thank you very much, Kat. <laughs> what have you been up to this morning? Well, I've just made some small square dishes. Well, I showed my, my assistant who comes on Saturday, a nice guy called Sam, and um, I showed him how to make them, and then I thought, well, I might as well make some more. <laughs> And, you know, I knew you were coming, so I thought, well, I'll leave it till the end of the week and I can paint them. And then when he comes on Saturday or Sunday, he can paint his. So, yeah, I've been plotting out some shapes on these square dishes. Excellent. I mean, we're sat here today in your studio and it's so colourful and so happy. And that's that's how I see your work. It's very, very vibrant and colourful. Talk to us a little bit about your aesthetic. How would you describe your own work? What inspires you? This work now is completely different to the work I started doing um, in 71 down at the Barbican. Um, in those days, I made traditional slipware, which was kind of like icing a cake to be to be sort of simple about it. Um, and I only used basically four colours, traditional English slipware colours. And then around about 1985, mm. I decided for a change and um, so I, I developed a palette of colours and started playing, really. And then I went to, well, originally I went to see an exhibition in the Whitechapel Gallery. It was an exhibition by Howard Hodgkin. And the colours were just amazing. And on the wall was a big round plate, about four foot wide. And I thought, God, that'd look great on a plate. <laughs> so I bought the catalogue, went home and started playing. And it, you know, and it developed from there. So I decided to learn about colour by looking at mostly painters, Howard Hodgkin, Rothko, uh, Patrick Heron, Robert Natkin, people like that really who, who use colour. And I guess most of them were 
basically abstract painters. Mm. And I've always liked pots that were more sort of off the beaten track, if you like. You know, one of my favourites, of course, was Peter Volkos, who literally turned ceramics upside down in America. Hans Hoffman used this technique um, called push-pull, where he put one colour next to another and one colour pushed it forward and another colour pushed it back and using several colours together. So I started playing around with that, which was really, really good fun to do. And then I also looked at um, David Hockney went through a phase of um, using the camera and taking photographs and then joining them up, mostly, um, what's that camera that you use where it prints straight away called oh like a, a polaroid camera polaroid yeah. yeah he used a polaroid camera and he got loads of these shots and then put them together like a jigsaw <laughs> so they were really interesting um negative spaces mm. and so i've always been sort of interested in the negative space i mean howard hodgkin i mean <laughs> he was amazing i was watching him last night actually and um he he could sometimes take four or five years to make a painting. <laughs> but he, what he would do, he would work on it and then he would cover it up, put it face against the wall. And he's usually got, well, he did have when he was alive, he'd have something up to 30 paintings on the go at the same time. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, Kat, that, you know, when you look at them, they look, they look so instant, you know, um... And you think, crikey, I wonder, you know, I mean, I, I could, you know, I'm not saying I could have, but I mean. I <laughs> you look thought, at it and you think, actually, I could do that. But, well, but that's, yeah, that, you, that's the skill involved, isn't it? Because yeah. if it looks easy, then it's taken probably more work oh, than yeah. anything else. Yeah, I mean, my big dishes, people used to say to me, how long does it take to make one of those? I mean, they're about 20 inches across, mm. you know. Mm. And I would just say, oh, 20 years and an hour, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> They did. But now I spend a lot longer on one piece. So I, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I recently bought one of your thumb pots, which I mm. absolutely mm. love. It's got pride of place on my shelf. I want to build up that collection, just saying. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and again, you know, you said before about that perfectly imperfect, almost rough and ready organic thing. And I love that. And I think it's really rare to see it these days. Why do you think sort of the mm. organic shape is has gone gone away? Ceramics in, in art colleges now has, has changed completely. I mean, when I was learning, most of the colleges, and they're nearly all closed now, sadly, um, we were taught um, in, the, in the tradition of Japan, repetition mm. throwing. Mm. You know, you'd, you'd be told to make a shape for a day and you'd, you'd make that shape and the, the potter who set the, set the shape up or the teacher, he would go around and he would, you know, criticise all the work. <laughs> and, I mean, nowadays it's all about design, you know. Yeah. You design on computers, well, you know, we were taught to design on the wheel with a lump of clay. I think that's the main reason. Most most of the art colleges now don't teach repetition throwing. I mean, if somebody said to me, I've got, a, you know, a son or a daughter who wants to be a potter, how do you suggest they take it up? The first thing I'd say is don't go to art college. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean it. I, I wouldn't send anybody to an art college now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know... You could get an apprenticeship at the Leech Pottery. You could go to Clay College in Stoke. Or, if you're lucky, you could get a kind of a 
an assistant's job or an apprenticeship with a professional potter, mm. someone like myself, old mm. school, but there's not many of us around now that would, would be making the sort of work that a student mm. could make and see it through, mm. you know. And, I mean, somebody said to me once about my plates, you know, they're a bit expensive for a plate, aren't they? <laughs> and I would just turn around and say, yeah, and I'd hate it if you put a meal on top of it because it, <laughs> it took me a day to paint it and you're going to cover it up with some slop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm looking around the studio now and th I mean, I would never put anything on your gorgeous, gorgeous pots. They're just fabulous. And, and like I said, mine's pride of place on my mantelpiece, which is which is beautiful. And it really adds something to my space. And I yeah. enjoy looking at it. I enjoy turning it around and seeing all of those different facets, uh, which which is beautiful. And, and I think you, you just you can't buy that in the shops anymore oh, no, it's all the same no, it's all no, the same no. um talking about your uh, Oops, your youth and uh, and going to to art school i, I want to know a little bit about uh, your time growing up where did you grow up what were your family like were you aware of your creative spark when you were young i think i think when we moved to london that was that was great because you know london's a great teacher yeah. You know, and I lived in a block of flats and um, there was a family in the flats that I, I sort of really liked being part of. My mum was okay, but my dad didn't really, uh, did, I mean, he wanted me to be an um, architect or something. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Mm. And the family I, I, I linked up with, John the father, I mean, he was like my surrogate dad, really. <laughs> and he was he was lovely, you know. I mean, he was a big drinker and he worked in Covent Garden Fruit Market. But, you know, he took me, took me to football, took me to cricket, took me to ice hockey, took me to motor racing, you know. And I was initiated into sport mm. through him. And I grew up, I mean, our kitchen window, you could see Highbury Stadium where the Arsenal play. <laughs> and he took me there when I was about 10, and, you know, and I've been an Arsenal fan ever since. But um, uh, And then I started, um, I went to these philosophy lectures um, in, in the West End of London. Basically, they were offering the teachings of Gurdjieff and Ospensky and some Sufi teaching. And what, what inspired you to, to go towards philosophy well, at that I've point always, if you were sort of sporty? Well, it's that old uh, that old nut is it nutmeg um, about um, why am I here? Yeah, I was yeah. one day I was as I was out somewhere and I, I suddenly looked up and I thought, why am I here? You know, what's the purpose of me being here? And that was really the beginning of a search for self knowledge, understanding, and that sort of thing. So I was looking for answers, if you like, and on the tubes in London there were posters for philosophy and economics mm. and they were run by the school of economic science and i didn't realize at the time but it was a big organization mm. and we got initiated into a form of meditation uh, the second year mm. the first year we did a kind of an exercise which was preparatory for meditation did you i mean were you aware of meditation at that point like before you went to study philosophy yeah i think 
one of the first one of the first things I got into was Buddhism. I did my A level in Buddhist philosophy for the, for the same reason. I think I was. I mean, I was seventeen and and questioning almost exactly like you, like, why am I here? And then I didn't even realise that Buddhist philosophy was was even something you could study. Mm. Um, and then when it came up in school, and I was really lucky that I I had that opportunity in school to study it, and yeah. it really did open my eyes. And it, it, it helped me to understand why, uh, like, it helped me to understand the difference between religion versus a way of life like a, a lifestyle which which the buddhist philosophy was was showing me yeah most religions um uh is, is a form of worship of an idol of some yeah. description whereas i think buddhism kind of like you've just said offers a teaching that helps you to understand yourself mm. so that you can be free Mm. of um, suffering. We all suffer. I mean, that's one of the basic principles of Buddhism is that we all suffer regardless and how to understand suffering. And um, suffering basically, I think, comes about through belief. We've mm. all got beliefs. And once you believe, you've got the opposite. So if I like one thing, say I like right and the other person likes left, you know, you've got conflict. When you get to being into politics and religion, you can see that, you know, those beliefs are what create conflict, eventually war. So mm. it helps you to see what the causes are and how in your own life, you know, you create a conflict. Mm. Um, and how to understand it and to go beyond it, really. So here you are in London, you're setting down into philosophy, you're learning about meditation. Mm. How did that affect uh, your relationships with your friends? Because there, there are not many people I can imagine at that point that would have been interested in philosophy at such a young age. Did you find that you you lost friendships through it? Did you find that you found closer friendships? What happened next? Well, that's interesting because <laughs> um, where I grew up, I grew up really near Hornsey Art College, mm. and most of my friends were art students, and I always wanted to go to art school, but because I left at 15, mm. I hadn't got any qualifications to go to art school but um, there was a friend of mine who was a painter and um, every, and he lived in a house full of artists mm. and every Saturday you know there was a bunch of us used to go there and then um, to cut it short one one day a, a, a guy turned up and we got chatting and I said to him, what, what, what do you, Anthony, he was called, Anthony Kedros. And I said, well, what do you do, Anthony? He said, oh, I'm at Harrow doing ceramics. <laughs> so I said, well, uh, you know, I left school. At, how can I learn ceramics? And then Richard said, you could go to Sir John Cass in, in Whitechapel in the East End. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So <laughs> I went down there, got smartened up, went in and asked to see the person in charge. And this lady, Carol, came over and she said, what can I do? And I said, oh, I want to be a potter. <laughs> so she said, when can you start? I said, well, I could start now if you like. <laughs> so she said, go home and change and come back. And honestly, that's how I started. I went back. 
<laughs> and she said to me, this is Andrew. He was a bit younger than me. He'll show you where the clay is. And we went into this dark room full of bins of mud and clay. And he started wedging it up, thumping it down. And I said to him, don't that hurt the clay? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, I thought, oh, yeah, he's got a right one here. But that's how I started. And that's I went incredible. back to, I was working in a scene shift, um, a scenery place then. And uh, she said, that's marvellous. She said, um, the boss, I'll show you how to be self-employed. And she, I worked for her a couple of days a week and then went to college and eventually got into Harrow. That's but, incredible. But all my friends at that time, they were all into meditation. I mean, at, at Sir John Cass, we used to go to, um, it was it was the 60s then. Mm. So hippies and meditation and all that stuff was very, very um, prevalent. And we used to go to St. Boltoff's, which is a church in Whitechapel, when we'd finished and we'd all sit there, you know, with long hair and beads and everything. <laughs> and the caretaker, you know, after he got used to us, he just used to let us come in and meditate and get on with it, really. What What do you think you gained from meditation? And did any of that insight transfer into your pottery, into your ceramics at that point? Yeah, well, I think... Um, you could describe meditation in a sense as a form of contemplation because mm. when you're sitting or meditating, um, you know, thoughts keep coming up and the basic teaching is to let them come and let them go. So as they come up, you don't attract a thought or, mm. you know, you, or they come up, but if you latch onto one and attract to it and build it up, you know, then it becomes a story. Then you add a feeling to it and then you start getting stressed out. And, and basically that's what we do outside of meditation, mm. but it also happens in meditation. So you learn that thoughts are just thoughts and, and have no strength or value unless you build them up and mm. add fuel to the fire, so to speak. So uh, in a way, uh, I mean, you start to contemplate. And what I do now in my work, mm. it fits perfectly as a form of contemplation. I mean, most artists, most creative people, it's not just potters, <laughs> most creative people contemplate, you know. You don't, you don't just do it all in one go. <laughs> I mean, musicians, I love improvisation. I mean, the music I love is mostly improvised, uh, Indian music and jazz mm. and Japanese shakuhachi music. I mean, I've gone through rock music and all that. I mean, it's all right, but it's the same old thing every time. <laughs> they keep repeating themselves, and I think, <laughs> don't you? I mean, you look around behind me, you know, you won't see two pots the same. Yeah. You won't see them the same. Everyone is contemplated in a bit of improv, really. Can you remember at that point in your life talking of music, what music was being played? What was in the air as you were creating? What did you and your friends like to listen to? I mean, the Beatles to me were the top. Mm. I mean, I worked on film locations and worked on a film, The Beatles. I met The Beatles on Salisbury Plain. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, <yeah>. what? <laughs> Rewind. Uh, well, <laughs> Talk to me about that. Um, well, I was, I was a driver, so I used to drive the mobile canteen or drive the van with all the food in it, <laughs> and we'd go on location 
And um, this film was called Help, and it was on the middle of Salisbury Plain somewhere, so there weren't any fans. The Beatles had a big caravan, and when they wanted something, they'd shout over to me to bring it in, and I used to go in. <laughs> I mean, I'm the same age as them, and I just used to stay in as long as I could until I felt they, they want me out. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so I've, I mean, I've always liked them. I mean, particularly George and John. Mm. I mean, Paul. Paul's okay. They're all good, but I mean, my favourites were, were George and John. You know, especially mm. George with his connection with Indian music. Yeah, and yeah. Ravi Shankar. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm just imagining your life at that point, and and it's it's already so vibrant, much like your yeah. parts today. I mean, it's very. Your style is very reminiscent of the life that you've led, which is incredible. Um, so coming back to to your ceramics, what did you do next? Did you go straight into creating and and full time? Uh, no, I went for a beer down in Crouch End. <laughs> Like you do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, a pub I would never go in. Mm. And this old mate of mine came in from, you know, the 60s. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing here? And he said, what are you doing here? And we discussed. He said, well, me and another mate of yours, Laurie, we're living down in Milton Coombe. Why don't you come down? So I went, packed up everything. Someone gave me a car and I drove with all my belongings in this car to Milton Coombe, just outside Plymouth. <laughs> I was here three days and the pottery on the Barbican came up. That's incredible. No money. I had 36 quid to my life. (laughs) So I put that down as a deposit for the rent. And then I went back to this guy who sponsored me and Les in Somerset. And luckily he sponsored me. So, I mean, that was just another, another luck. You know, it, a lot of people call it fate, but I met a Zen teacher once and she said, no, there's no such thing as fate. It's it's causes and conditions that come together that create a situation that you find yourself in. Mm. And then I went to New Zealand in 1981 to do a tour. Mm. And during that tour, I met this American uh, potter, called Don Wright. So Don was amazing. I mean, he was like Anthony Quinn in Zorba the Greek. You know, oh, was, I love that film. <laughs> he was he was that kind of person. You know, he'd eat the eat the guts out of a mountain, you know, and he yeah. used to throw massive pots. And uh, uh, he was just outrageous. And uh, I got on really well with him. What's one of your um, happiest memories from that time in New Zealand? The most memorable was the opening ceremony in Palmerston North on a big lawn. There was about 200, 250, I suppose, uh, New Zealand potters all in a big half circle. And then there was the the meeting house with, it looked like a cricket pavilion with um, some seats outside. And the Maori elders were all sat there. <laughs> And then they invited us to talk or sing. They they sang, and I said, I can't sing. <laughs> Don couldn't sing either. And he started to give a speech and started weeping. I was already dripping. <laughs> and then it was my turn to go up. And I started babbling and dripping and made some some comment about, the, the grass or the area in front of the um, pavilion is called the Mariah, and that's holy ground. And my tears were sort of dropping on that. And anyway, so that that 
you know, at the end, I mean, we got loads of applause. And then we joined a big circle and formed hands. And all these little Mary kids came running over oh. and started to sort of hold, hold our hands. And then at the end, um, I went up to the elder, one of the elders, the chiefs or whatever they call them. And I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about, you know, the tears and all that. And he said, don't worry. He said, we'd rather see a, an expression of genuine emotion than listen to a long-winded speech for an hour. <laughs> and I thought, great. So that, I mean, that experience was something I'll always remember. And I presented at the end of the, the um, seminar, I presented them with a teapot, just an ordinary teapot. Mm. And I was doing slipwear then. And um, they they told me later they'd built a little shelf and stuck it in the pavilion house oh. with these massive longboat canoes and wow. all the artefacts. I felt really proud about that. Not that I get proud anyway, but... It's, it's so lovely to hear you talking about New Zealand in that way. And I know that um, my mum and dad... Uh, have recently been to New Zealand and and I asked my dad that question recently I said you know if you could live anywhere else in the world where would it be and without hesitation he went New Zealand and uh and said pretty much the same thing he said you know the landscape and the people were just so generous and lovely and just just a beautiful place I think um I think you know I'd have difficulty with that question I mean I think I think Japan would be my choice. Talk to talk to <laughs> us about Japan. What have been your experiences in Japan well, and how has it influenced your work? I've been there work? twice. The first time I went to stay with a mate of mine, just to see all the things I was interested in, like mm. Ikebana, pottery, mm. um, Zen gardens, temples, all that stuff. And... Um, I went down to Kyoto, and that was lovely. I went to see the, the two two big temples, the mm. Golden Temple and Ryoanji. Mm. Um, and then I went to Kamakura, where there was lots of temples. Uh, that was that was brilliant. And then um, I forget how long ago it was. It wasn't that long ago, within the last ten years, anyway. I went with the monk that came here, Shinzen Roshi, and um, we did a retreat in his teacher's temple in Gifu Prefecture. Mm. And he was an old Rinzai teacher, old school. And his teacher was really old school. I mean, in the winter, he had opened the windows (laughs) so it was really cold. And then in the summer, he'd shut them so they all sweated. (laughs) And... um, but with us, he was he was really 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 nice, and he he was he was really interesting. And on the last day, myself and one of the other guys that I went with, we took precepts with him. The precepts are a bit like the Ten Commandments, you know. They're they're meant to protect you. For me to be offered or given precepts in Japan by a Zen teacher and be given a <laughs> A Japanese Zen name was like for me so auspicious. I mean, what is your Japanese Zen name? Jion Shinko. What does it mean? It means uh, like gentle teacher. Oh, I love that, <laughs> and you are well gentle, but and firm. then you get a, you get a kind of a um, what they call a rakusu, which which symbolises the Buddha's robes. It's made of rags, and Shinzen Roshi would write your name in in kanji on the back. And then you're given a bloodline certificate, which takes your bloodline right from 
Shinzen Roshu gave you the precepts right the way back through various teachers to the Buddha. Incredible. So I got precepts in Rinzai Zen and also I did precepts in 2000 in Soto Zen. Have you, I mean, the way that you talk about your passion for the Buddhist lifestyle, has it ever crossed your mind to join the monastic lifestyle? Not at all. No. Um, I've, I mean, I've studied lots of Zen teachings mm. and life in Zen monasteries. And to be honest, it's a bit like going in the army. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, when you come out, you're different. You're not a killer. You're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a you're peaceful mu- warrior. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're much more compassionate. Um, <laughs> But also I feel that um, now um, I've just been reading about um, a Zen teacher called Kodo Sawaki and he's known as Homeless Kodo Mm. because he wouldn't wouldn't take on a monastery and he would just give talks wherever he went. I mean, this was like 100 years ago, I think Mm. maybe, I can't remember, but more recent. Mm. And... um, I'm beginning to think that um, in in the world as we know it now, which is different to when Zen originated, mm. you know, hundreds of years ago, um, there is still this sense of of being a part of something, mm. which um, still means you're attached. Mm. My feeling now is that I just want to meditate, mm. you know, like on my own. I mean, if the opportunity came to 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 just practice with a renowned teacher, someone I respected, mm. um, I would go along and maybe sit with him or meditate with him. But I've, I've got a feeling now that there are so many groups, not just Zen groups, but other groups mm. that give people, in a sense, security. Mm. And, you know, and the point being, if that group suddenly goes, you know, what what do those people do? Do they feel rejected or lonely or do they join another group for Mm. that sense of security? I mean, that's just my personal feelings about it. I mean, many, many people think differently to me and they're very welcome to think that way. Mm. But for me personally, I mean, I, I sit generally twice a day or meditate, we call it, twice a day. And um, I don't belong to any groups. (laughs) (laughs) How does it keep your mental health in check? What do you what do you think you benefit from when you do these activities that you can sort of apply in the real world? It's not what I get. It's what I don't get. Yeah. Um, If I find myself going off on one. Mm. I know I can bring myself back. Yeah. That's yeah. the difference. You know, through practice, through practicing Zen or mm. Zen meditation, I see our thoughts arise. Mm. I see how I, I catch on to them. Mm. Good, or, good or bad thoughts, don't matter, whatever mm. kind they are. You know, I could start thinking about my birthday coming up. You know, oh, I can't wait to be, <clears throat> you know, so many <laughs> years old. But, um, you know, and then... I'll come back, you know, I think, oh, that was a waste of time. You know, it's it's a bit like going through a colour supplement or a magazine. You turn the pages over and then you find one that interests you mm. and you read it mm. and then you let it go. You turn over again. So coming back to your work, 
What have been some of the the highlights? I mean, you've mentioned New Zealand and that was that's just sounds so emotional, but what have been some of the moments where you've you've thought, wow, you know, I get to do this for a living? Uh oh yeah. I got <laughs> I got an email from this this guy called Stoker. And I thought it was a bit of a scam, really. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to see some more of my pots. And I said to a mate of mine, does this look like a scam to you? He said, Google it. Anyway, it turned out to be the Duke of Devonshire. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> he had been to London and he'd seen my work mm. and he'd seen my work in the gallery and had bought some. And then he wanted more. So I sent him some images of the, the other work plates and things and he bought the lot. Wow. So, you know, I'd never been to Chatsworth House and I, you know, <laughs> I wanted to meet him anyway. So I delivered them. I said, can I come up and deliver them? And um, I did. Unfortunately, I didn't meet him then, mm. but I met him at another event. And... Um, I had a look around Chatsworth. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. You've seen it on films and all yeah. that sort of thing. But I, and your I, work lives there now, John, forevermore. Yeah. And then more recently, well, I mean, after all the lectures, now we've had the lockdown, um, now Zoom has started coming mm. up. And a friend of mine, um, Jenny Hale, she made that fox. She is now chairperson of the Cornwall Glass and Ceramics Association. And she said, would you do a Zoom, a two-hour Zoom oh, crikey. for 100 people? Well, I, you know, I mean, apart from New Zealand, you yeah. know, I've never... I mean, the odd thing about it was, Kat, that, you know, I did it from here. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in my little studio down the back, which is a quarter the size of this room, and to me there's 100 people in there watching me, which was bizarre. <laughs> the other thing was I couldn't see anybody, you know. Talking of um, new and innovative ways of doing stuff, what, what motivates you to keep going? Have you ever wanted to quit? And if so, what did you do to get yourself out of it? Or have you always been passionate about it and continuously yeah, motivated? that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, as I've got older... I've made less and charged more. Well, <laughs> That's just the sign of a professional, John. <laughs> yeah, but I guess I'm I'm kind of um, what's the word? Not addicted. Well, you could say addicted, but I'm I'm obsessed by making them. Compelled. Compelled. I'm. You know. I mean, I don't. I don't work every day. I mean, mm. you know. Some sometimes I don't feel like doing much, so I don't do much. Mm. You know. I don't. I don't sort of punish myself. I, I never think about giving up. You know, because all the time it's a challenge mm. to 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 create something that isn't the same as the last one. You know, I continually have to look to get started. I look at what I've done before. I mean, Hodgkin never looked. Mm. I mean, and I could never work out how he created these wonderful paintings from a memory, mm. you know, like a room or a view or something like that, because they're so abstract. I mean, that one, Highgate Woods. Now, when I grew up in North London, I used to go to Highgate, uh, not Highgate Woods, Highgate Ponds. I used to go to Highgate Ponds and go fishing <laughs> on a bike. And then I worked in Highgate when I was 21. And actually, I can see that as Highgate. That's really interesting. And we're looking again in the studio at Highgate Ponds yeah. by Howard Hodgkin. Yeah. Um, which, to describe to you listeners, it's like um, 
imagine a really loose painterly painting with bright yellow borders, blues, greens, mustard colours, ochres uh, in the centre. Yeah. And I actually, I kind of get it. I can see well, the, the landscape being the like the green. They're the bushes. Yeah. You know, the, and then the, the water is the green blue. blobs yeah. of the bushes. The yeah. blue might be the water. Yeah. I don't know what all this is. I mean, he's overpainted, overpainted. Yeah. And yeah. he's, and he's very, um, He's one of the rare painters that paints the frame. Some of his yeah. frames are really beautiful. Yeah. But, I mean, that one on there is another one. That's um, uh, learning about Russian music, that one. And it's kind of like a, a red and, yeah. and yellow square, well, isn't it, with blues, frame. greens and blacks That is the, the actual picture frame. That's crazy. So, it's know, beautiful, beautiful work. And, again, his, his sense of perspective going in, yeah. You know, that orange rectangular takes you right into the imagery in the middle. But how that how that represents Russian music, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but, but then, you know, I'm I'm looking at your pots and I can see that same sort of similar use of colour. And and because you've got kind of almost that that negative space you're talking about, that black negative space, yeah. Yeah. it brings it forward in a three yeah, well, D way. My, that's one of my techniques is to use black. I mean, I was very friendly with um, Robert Lenkovich when he was alive. He's a Plymouth yeah. painter. I used to meet him actually for, yeah. for lunch. He used to come into my cafe where I used to work on the barbican. But he very always he always painted he always painted on a, a black background. Yeah, yeah, um, and that would send his colours forward. Um, but I've always painted on black. And someone said to me the other day, you know, you use white clay and that you cover it in black. Yeah. Why do you do that? And it is because, unlike painting, some of the colours burn out. Yeah. yeah. And if they burn out and you've got black underneath, it hides it. Whereas mm. if you've got white, it looks thin and, and, and insipid in a way. But, I mean, talking of titles, I mean, I... I um, give titles to most of my plates oh, and my flatware. I've got books in the drawer. with. I, I, I like writing one-liners down. Mm. If somebody says something, I'll write it down. And the other day I had a plate that was slightly chipped underneath. It, you know, I couldn't send it to a gallery. Sure. It's a nice big plate. And uh, my mate Al was here and... Um, I said to him, would you like it, Al? I said, I can't sell it. There's nothing wrong mm. with the front. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, oh, that's really nice. And then he said, what, what do you call it? And I said, oh, I, said, I don't know, Al. Have a look <laughs> at it. And he, he said, oh, it looks like a boat. <laughs> so I said, oh, yeah, I think I can see that. He said, passing through. And I said, okay, passing through. <laughs> and, and gave it a title. And then, I, and then later on I thought, that's really interesting, passing through, isn't it? Because that's what you do in life. You yeah. just pass through. I mean, if I couldn't work, say something happened, you know, that I couldn't work, mm. you know, doing pots, um, I would still find some way to express myself. You know, I like writing. Mm. I do like writing. I've started loads of stories. What What advice would you give to young people, young creatives that are coming into ceramics now, what what are the top tips and advice that you can give to them that maybe they wouldn't know or they wouldn't maybe think about when they're starting out? It depends what sort of potter they've 
made their mind up or they they, they think they want to be. Mm. Just keep looking at lots and lots and lots of pots. You know, mm. go online, choose well-known people, mm. go to galleries. You know, just keep looking and looking and looking. If you you just, I mean, I'm looking all the time. I never mm. stop looking. I remember going to St Ives with Robert Lenkovich once and two friends. And we were walking through St. Ives and all of a sudden he saw this shadow on the wall. He said, look at that shadow. (laughs) And we would have walked past it. And it was just the way the light changed what was on the wall, you know. Mm. And you you just have to keep looking. This podcast is called The Brave Moment Podcast. And and what that refers to is those moments in your life where you've been changed either physically, mentally or spiritually. And as a result you've kind of evolved or you've changed your values around the way that you work. I did have a big experience in Japan Mm. the second time. I went with Daizen Roshi, the monk who stayed here. Yeah. And we we were training with Shinzen Roshi. Roshi is a teacher. And um, we were doing this um, practice called the intensive practice. Mm. So you'd sit opposite, and it, it was we, the 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 trip was designed to experience Kensho, which is like a, I suppose you'd call it like a, an enlightenment moment or some, mm. an understanding moment or whatever. And um, we were doing this intensive. So the idea is, for example, I would say to you. My name is John Cat. Tell me who you are, mm. and you would start to reveal your who you thought you were for five minutes. The bell would go, and then you would ask me the same question. And it's like peeling back the layers of an onion in a way. That's mm. an easy way to describe it. And then I was actually doing it with um, Dyson, you know, the guy I went with, the monk I went with, and when all of a sudden, you know, I experienced this what they call Kensho which is an overwhelming um, feeling, if you want, of joy, happiness, love, you know, blissed out, absolutely (laughs) blissed out. And um, I started laughing. (laughs) I was just so happy, you know. And he looked at me and his eyes kind of like, you know, went, went, wow, you know. And then the bell went and I went on to the next person and I was still in it. And she said, every muscle on your face is like alive, da di da di da <laughs> Anyway, when it finished, I was still like buzzing in a way. And I said to him, can I talk to you about it? So we went outside the, the, the uh, monastery and sat on the veranda. And I said, was that a Kensho? He said, yeah, that was a Kensho. <laughs> that was a big one. <laughs> and... Opposite us was this bamboo grove, and the, this bamboo was blowing like mine are blowing at the moment, and I was no space between me and the bamboo. And he said to me, it was probably um, the sum total of the teachings you've received mm. from all your teachers. And, you know, I respected him for that because he could have took the glory for it, yeah. and he didn't. You know, you grow up, you grow up in an environment like I did after the war, during the war, after the war, London, mm. you know, crime, you know, uh, then you, you get lucky and, you you, you know, you, your life changes here, there and everywhere. And all that makes the sort of person that your personality is, mm. like your personality is you, you've sung with the bands and all that and 
done all sorts of other things, same as me. But underneath all that, there is another essence. Mm. And once you tap into that essence, you see that everything else is just laid on. Yeah, yeah. I've really enjoyed yeah, listening to you as fun. I always have. Good fun. So I'm going to give you a, a quick fire question round. <gasps> I know, right? So to answer as quickly as possible the following oh, questions no. without thinking then. too much about it. Okay, the first question is, what makes you happy today? Oh, my work. <laughs> what makes you sad? Uh, other people's sadness. If you could change one thing about you, what would it be? I wish I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You wouldn't be you without, without your lovely, uh, polished yeah. cranium. Um, if you were to be reincarnated, what would you want to come back as? Uh, well, I wouldn't come back as a human being, that's for sure. Um, probably a bird, a big oh. bird, something that could soar. I like that book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I you know, love I that I wouldn't book. want to be a seagull, but I like that, I like that story. <laughs> Although down here, they are like the yeah, kings of well, the kingdom, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Pet peeve. Oh, politics and religion. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, Favourite film? Favourite film? Well, uh, I suppose it'd have to be The Seven Samurai. A song that, if it comes on the radio, you're likely to sing along to, even if it's only in your own head. <laughs> Probably a Leonard Cohen song, really. I love Leonard Cohen. Um, Dance Me to the End of Love. Oh, brilliant. Um, a book that made a big impression on you? Oh, that's easy. Uh, the Little Prince. Oh, The Little <laughs> Prince. They've recently made it into a film that's available oh, I've on seen Netflix. seen the cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen the cartoon. No, The Little Prince uh, <laughs> by Excupere. That, that, that brought me to tears. And uh, I was, my parents were in the same flat as us in London and I'd read it in one, one go and I went in the kitchen and I was dripping and bawling and whatever. <laughs> and my mum said, what's wrong with you? So I said, um, oh, it's that book. Well, what did you read it? for <laughs> um a place that feels like home and that can be anywhere it doesn't have to be in this country oh um yeah that's interesting well i suppose since i've been living in plymouth since 71 i always like going on the hoe mm -hmm. Um, and when I, you know, when I lived in Plymouth and I, you know, used to go back to London, the first place I was went to mm. was up on the hoe, mm. you know, because um, when it's not too busy, um, it, it's different every time you go up there. <laughs> every time you go up there, it is different. A smell that you associate with the word home. Oh, crikey. Incense, I suppose. <laughs> You can have dinner with a hero or heroine. Who is it and where would you take them? Oh, I think uh, that that's... Um, uh, what's his name? Mickey O'Sullivan, is it? Oh, M Mickey Flanagan, the comedy guy. I'd love to go out and I'd love to go out and have a meal with him and just just have a laugh, you know. I mean, <laughs> I, I I associate with him so much, you know. I've watched <laughs> nearly every show he's ever done on YouTube, and I see him time and time again, you know. And when you know when he 
performs in somewhere like the O2 and there's thousands of people in there and they're all laughing their heads off at him. <laughs> you know, he's just such a cheeky chappy, but he, he, he's obviously... He's obviously an observer. Mm. He notices people's behaviour. He notices it. He listens to what people's lives are like, and then he can just twist it around to, <laughs> to sort of him and his wife, you know. <laughs> um, I don't think he'd like a vegetarian meal. So I think uh, we would either go somewhere like maybe the Pastor and Pizza Bar, George, nice. and, George and Paul's Place on Southside Street. Brilliant. Um, but you'd have to be somewhere where you weren't too close to the people next to you. Yeah, so yeah. you could have a good old swear, <laughs> you know. Last meal on earth. Last meal on earth. Maybe a nice vegetarian meal. Hmm. You know, but something from Cosmic Kitchen would be really nice. Cosmic Kitchen. You know, with a scotch egg on it, but oh, a veggie one. Yeah. Um, you know, I do I do really think they've done a great job, the girls there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'd like, uh, I mean, I'd like a meal from f- there, <laughs> but I don't think I could take Mickey there because it's not up his street somehow. <laughs> I think he likes a steak and a burger, but... <laughs> Never mind. Finally, tell me about that picture of that bird on your shelf. Because <laughs> it's oh, been staring at me this whole interview yeah, and I want to know what, it, what it's all about. That's my friend um, Charlotte Miller. <laughs> she, um, she makes badges. <laughs> and um, she lives in Bournemouth. And I met her at a ceramics event. And I liked her badges. I was going to buy one. But sadly, I didn't, and I pinched her card. And her budgie, you know, I like him because he's got this trendy orange hat on, which everybody seemed to be wearing about a year ago. But I put him up there so he can watch me work, same as the fox. The fox watches me work. Dalai Lama watches me work. Um, And her budgie. Yeah, that budgie. And who else watches me work? Colin watches me work. I think Howard Hodgkin watches you work yeah, as well. well by the yeah, of it. Howard would. Yeah, but I, I, I did meet him once. <laughs> you yeah. like, I've got so many pieces. My of your hero. Work. <laughs> yeah, I did meet him at the Theatre Royal. Wow! And I got his autograph in the program. And when I went up to him and asked for his autograph, please, would you mind if I, you know, because I had to be polite to him. Mm. I was told by Beryl Cook that he was a bit funny. <laughs> I said, would you mind signing my programme? And the programme was a double-page spread of one of his pictures. And he went, oh, no, he went. And I thought, oh, I've come up the wrong time. He said, they printed it the wrong way up. <laughs> and he turned it the right way up and signed it. It's on the wall in the, on the, in the hall. So I've got one final question uh, before we leave the show today. What advice would you give to the world right now coming out of this pandemic and if you could say anything you wanted to to the whole entire world you know bar the politicians what would you tell them well just try and enjoy living yeah really just try and find a way to enjoy what life you've got Mm. sadly you know there are trouble spots around the world and people can't do that but those that could take that advice you know just try and enjoy your life and and try not to upset people (laughs) thank you so much john for coming on the show today and giving us such an amazing amount of time i really appreciate it thank you (laughs) been good fun (laughs) 
I love how John's personal meditative practices mesh with his artistic expression. As John says, all art forms are a form of contemplation on some level, each allowing us to be in the moment with time and our bodies and minds. It is no wonder that so many of us take part in art to escape the suffering state of our everyday existence. John's love affair with the wheel has encouraged each of his pieces to be a unique expression. As he says, not one piece is a repeat. He takes great joy in the improvisational nature of pottery and the push and pull of the colour palettes he uses to inspire him taken from ideas presented to him by great artists and their application of colour. John's affinity with Japan has helped him to explore pottery in an ancient way, creating raw, imperfect and, as he says, wonky pieces full of character and a perfect capture of the moments in which they were created. I have two pieces of John's work, two beautiful thumb pots, one of which was created with paper clay. I love to look upon them and feel them with my hands, allowing my eyes to fall on each indentation, each colour and texture. John is one of the last master potters in the southwest, and it really shows. Whether he would accept that compliment or not, I'm not sure, but my pots will become heirlooms nonetheless, as all good art should. John is a cerebral explorer. He loves to read and express the ideas he finds with others, passing on his wisdom and adding to it. I could talk for hours with him and his generous spirit is ever present with everyone he meets. You can't teach authentic patience, but maybe because of John's Buddhist practices, he will quite happily indulge you with a good set of ears. One thing that really resonated with me was when John spoke about the mental health aspect of meditation. He said, it's not what I get, it's what I don't get. Meaning, he no longer gets stressed, compulsive or intrusive thoughts, proud, self-indulgent, anxious, etc. Instead, he gets space, no thoughts, fluidity, expansion. He gets timeless time. There are many different forms of meditation and mindfulness techniques out there to try, each one offering something slightly different. But here is an easy exercise to get you started. Close your eyes and take a deep cleansing breath. Start to focus your attention on your feet and ask them to relax. Ask your legs to relax. Ask your hips to relax. Ask your stomach and your lower spine to relax. Ask your chest to relax. Ask your upper back to relax. Ask your shoulders, your arms, your hands and your fingertips to relax. Ask your neck to relax. Ask your jaw to slacken. For your cheeks to relax. Ask the muscles around your eyes to gently relax. Allow any stress or tension in your forehead to just gently float and melt towards your ears. Ask the top of your head to relax. Now focus your attention 
to that space just behind the eyes. And imagine that that space is gently opening outwards. I wonder if you can imagine with your strong and vivid imagination that you are lying down in a safe and comfortable space. Allow your thoughts to gently rise towards that space behind the eyes. And as they do, imagine them like bubbles in a fish tank. As each thought rises in your mind, see if you can observe it and acknowledge it for just a second. Name the thought in your mind. Say something like, I'm witnessing my thought about how I've just got three minutes before I have to pick the kids up from school. And instead of obsessing on what that might mean or how you would spend that three minutes, just allow that thought bubble to gently rise to the surface of that imaginary fish tank and gently pop in front of your eyes. As the next thought arises, again imagine it like a bubble just gently moving through the water. Observe the thought as it happens. And again, just let it go. Imagine it gently moving towards the surface of that imaginary space and popping. If you like, you can pause this podcast now and just try this exercise for maybe two or three minutes and come back when you're finished. How did you find that? Was it easy to let your thoughts go or did you find it difficult? Without judgment, write down your results in a journal. Keep practicing until the exercise feels easy and fluid. This is a nice one to do either in the morning or just before bed. I love meditation and mindfulness and personally love the calm that can be found in forest bathing, one of my favourite Shinto practices. And if meditation isn't your bag, Check out mindfulness instead. These are simple, in-the-moment exercises, again designed to keep your mind from catching a thought and letting it spiral you out of control. One of my favourites is to get a piece of fruit. Take that fruit and roll it in your hands. Feel the texture against your skin. Lift the piece of fruit up to your nose and smell its fresh scent. Place it on your lips feeling the difference from how it felt in your hands. Gently bite into it, allowing its flavour to burst on your tongue. Feel your teeth as they pull and crush the skin and then slide smoothly through the pulp. Close your eyes and slowly chew, savouring the flavour and feel as it rolls around in your mouth. As you swallow, feel the mechanism of your throat and esophagus as the food is taken down to your stomach. By the time you've finished this exercise, maybe a whole five minutes may have passed. Another quick pick-me-up is to place a pencil so that it's horizontal between your teeth. This simple act sends signals to your brain that you are smiling even though you're not really, which in turn creates the chemicals your brain associates with happiness 
And in as little as two or three minutes, you have already boosted your happy chemicals, allowing a change in your chemical makeup and making a difference in how you may view your next few hours of the day. Finally, John expresses that he is compelled towards his art and can't imagine a life without it. Art is often like that for many people because it is a lifelong journey of building a skill set. With art, the more you put in, the more you get to see coming out. Unlike other jobs where you may be producing work for someone else and therefore once it's done, it's gone and out of your hands, with art, you get to see your progress and you get to work things out for yourself and you get the reward from the reactions of those who see it or purchase it if you're lucky. And the best thing is, unlike most other things, especially nowadays with technology replicating and reproducing thousands of the same objects over and over, you can't reproduce, say, a thumb pot twice. You can't make the same piece of origami in the same way. You can't take a picture of the same bird in the same position and you can't reproduce a perfect copy of the same colours to paint another life drawing. That original contemplation, that original make, will stay original forever. And that, my friends, is how passion is born. Passion is the building of dreams, the search for the next piece of the artistic puzzle, the creation and destruction available at your fingertips. It is the giving of your energy to something outside of your own body, allowing it to live before your eyes, be that art or love or even more. So be considerate of where your passion may be taking you and know that whatever you do with it becomes a part of your own personal legacy. A piece of art can last for thousands of years and give a beautiful insight into the way a person chose to view the world and how passionately they lived within it. As Buddha once said, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts and with our thoughts we make the world. Peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. Next week on the show, we kick off the Writer's Summer mini-series with Scott Prize winner Tom Vowler, who will be giving his advice on writing and also reading an extract from his new novel, Every Seventh Wave. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe and tell me your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share the show with your friends by following us at The Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, or on Twitter at Moment Brave, or just follow the link tree on all of our social media platforms. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with your own stories and remember, your brave moment starts now.